0: Heavenly Father, as we, uh, dive into this subject, I pray that, uh, we would be faithful to scripture, uh, but we would also be thoughtful, we would be, uh, compassionate, um, and, uh, we would have deep sympathy. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen. Alright, so, uh, last week, I outlined, uh, the positive, uh, vision, moral vision of the Bible that precludes homosexuality. And I said that the the Bible's vision of sex and marriage is that marriage is the union of complementary genders so that the two halves of humanity are brought together in marriage um, and that the unique perspectives, the sort of um, non-interchangeable glories of femininity and masculinity are brought together together. and that there's something even deeper going on beyond that, which is that it ultimately points to the gospel, right? The union between Christ and the Church, uh, um, so that we are like God, right? We're made in the image of God, but then we are very different from God, and uh, and that homosexuality is a distortion of that gospel image, right? Um, so today, I want to subject that. Uh, biblical view to intense scrutiny, or the scrutiny that can subject it for one hour, and see if it holds up. Um, We're going to see if it it can withstand sort of analysis. And so that's sort of the the way I envision the class. And so I've outlined a series of objections. Um, The way I've sort of uh, mapped it out is that, uh, in my opinion, the more important or the more serious objections are first, and then the lesser important objections are in descending order. Um, Obviously, that's just my own subjective ordering. We're going to spend half the class, or perhaps more, on just the first two objections. Because in my opinion, the first two objections are the most serious objections, right? Um, And require the most uh, thoughtful answer. Um, So, let's begin. So, the first objection is, okay, so if the Bible says no to homosexuality, then it seems cruel and deeply unrealistic to expect our LGBT friends not to act on their deep sexual attractions and to find fulfillment in homosexual relationships. So basically, the objection is: if if, if what the Bible says is true, then it seems quite cruel, right? Um, so that if you're heterosexual, right, the Bible says there's a pathway to finding fulfillment. Um, and companionship, and uh, the deep oneness of marriage, but we say no to our gay friends. And um, one book that I think really helped me uh, in preparing for this class um, is this book called Washed and Waiting. It's a really thin book. Um, Washed and Waiting by Wes Hill. And Wes Hill, he is a... Uh, he he is a, uh, uh, actually he's right now a professor at a Christian college, but um, he sort of came to this deep realization. He knew all along, all through his childhood that he was gay, but he sort of came to accept it and struggle with it in college when he was at Wheaton. And he sort of, you know, was weighing the, you know, what what we'll get back to it later, the revisionist side, the gay affirming uh. uh, uh view of the Christian life, but then he quickly, after study, decided that he's going to hold to what's called the classic orthodox view of sexuality, so he decided that he's going to be um, a celibate gay Christian, and, and so he wrote this book and about the struggle, and I thought it was really, really helpful, because he doesn't talk about um, the arguments so much as he talks about his personal experience a lot, and there's this one story that I think was really sorrowful. He says that he was at his wedding party, and um, he was dancing with a female friend, and he says that she was beautiful, um, she was in this lovely dress, and so he was dancing with her, and uh, you know, they had a very good friendship, and he said he felt no attraction, no desire at all. And he said in that moment, he felt really sad, and he felt really uh, lonely, because he realized I'm never going to be able to have that marriage, right? Because he's closing the door to himself because he wants to be faithful to his understanding of scripture. Um, And and so, you know, what do we say to that, right? Which is that Christianity is asking of our gay friends a lifetime of suppression and self-denial of their sexuality, right? And in the face of strong, unchanging same-sex desires, how can the Bible reasonably condemn every single expression so it's good that we brought chairs but if you guys are looking for chairs we have (laughs) I was skeptical that we would need such chairs (laughs) Um, so it just seems like uh, it's cruel, and it seems like we're setting up our gay friends for failure right because we're asking them to be uh, uh, celibate we're asking them to be chaste their entire life and that just seems really unreasonable so here's the answer um, and it's a long answer, the answer is this, which is that the Christian call to chastity only makes sense within the larger story of the gospel. And, uh, and so what I want to say is that you always live out the story that makes the most sense to you, that, that is the most compelling to you. And, in this, and, in, and at this point, I think it's really helpful to think through how the gospel story is very, very different Than the story that our culture tells us, right? So let me just outline it very quickly. So, our culture story tells us that you should follow your dreams, be true to who you are. So, this is so deeply embedded in our culture, it's in our graduation speeches. It's in Disney animated films, right? It's everywhere. So as I write this, hopefully, you should be saying, I completely understand, right? Be true to yourself. Don't let anyone tell you you can't, you can't do something or you can't be something. So I'll I'll say, don't, um, David. Can you close the door? Actually, there is an air conditioning unit here somewhere—a thermostat. Paul, can you fiddle with that? Okay, there we go. I was going to say you have to jimmy it open, maybe. All right. (laughs) I just said, don't leave everything exactly the same. (laughs) Oh, she she also she also said that we left the air conditioning on the whole. The whole weekend. They're welcome, huh? They're welcome. Yeah, yeah. Um, So we We have to remind the uh, the children's teachers to, to to turn it off. Okay. So this is the culture story, right? Follow your dreams. Be true to who you are, and don't let anyone, don't let external forces, don't let parents or tradition or whatever tell you you can't do something, you can't be something. And in that light, right, this is very important, in that light, your sexuality, you understand your sexuality in that light. And therefore, if you have same-sex attractions, to suppress or to deny those uh, deep same-sex attractions is wrong, it's morally wrong, and psychologically unhealthy, right? So that should um, make a lot of sense to us as as modern people. So let me let me describe a different story, okay? Um, and as we as we look at the two stories, I want us to think which story rings true, right? Which story fits the experience of reality? So Christianity is story. Is this there was uh Christianity story is there's creation. By my putting a G right. Christianity story is there's creation, and at creation everything was good, everything was beautiful. But then what happened? The fall. And in the fall, the fall was a total, all-encompassing experience. Everything became corrupted, everything became broken and twisted, Um, including our desires, right? This is very important. The fall includes our sexuality, right? There's no aspect of uh, the human experience, the human condition that is not subject to the fall most especially, perhaps, we can even say our sexuality, which comes so close to uh, uh, human human flourishing. So there's the fall, and then, of course, there's redemption in Jesus Christ. But even in redemption, we still experience the profound effects of the fall. right? We still experience brokenness. And so even in redemption, we're waiting. We're waiting for... Um, the new heavens and the new earth, right? New creation. When everything will be restored, everything will be made beautiful and good and new. But we live in this, we live in this zone, right? And in this zone, when you look at your sexuality, rather than, uh, according to our culture story, which is, you look at your sexuality and you say, uh, follow your dreams, be true to who you are. In the Christian story, you look at your sexuality, you look at your desires, and you deeply distrust them, right? And you recognize that, and we in fact expect brokenness in our deepest desires. And this is not to say, by the way, that uh, straight is good, gay is bad, or gay is broken, Um. Straight or or heterosexuality is also broken. And I think this is where uh, reparative therapy is deeply, deeply flawed and unchristian. Reparative therapy, also called conversion therapy, basically uh, it's a form of uh, therapy where you try to make someone who has same-sex attractions have heterosexual attractions, right? And there's multiple problems with that. The first of which is that Heterosexuality is not wholeness, right? Uh, for example, um, almost all men who are heterosexuals uh, and who are married would like to have sex with multiple women. Uh, I don't have to prove that with individual cases. It's just a fact if you look at, for example, history. Right? Anytime men have wealth, anytime men have power, in history, they have a harem, right? They have polygamous relationships. So there's something, and, and and what does the Bible say to that? The Bible says there's something deeply broken with our desires. Our desires are misaligned. Our desires are not um, to be trusted. They're, they're disordered. The other thing is, so what one of the techniques that reparative therapy uses is, they'll use porn to sort of excite and stimulate heterosexual desires, which, if you think about it, is a really perverse way, uh, because, perverse thing, because the goal is not heterosexuality, the goal is holiness, right? And the, the other thing, the other problem with reparative therapy, I would say, is that it has a deep, uh, it deeply uh, underestimates how our desires are so deep within us. It's not the result, necessarily, of superficial environmental stimuli so that it's not so easily changed, right? Um, so so the point here is that all our sexuality is broken. Not just homosexuality, but heterosexuality is broken, right? And, and uh, the illustration here I would use, I always think about this is I had a friend who, uh, um, a good friend, who his wife called me and she was in tears, she says, my husband's having an affair. Would you please talk to him? So I talked to him, and I said, what is going on? Why are you doing this? He was a professing believer, so I said, your wife is willing to forgive you and accept you back. So, go back to her, love her, be faithful to her, be loyal to her. And he said to me, and I'll never forget this, he says, how can I go back to her because that's a loveless marriage. And I'm in love with this other woman. How, and he said this to me. He says, how can I deny my desires? He was parenting to me our culture story. Follow your dreams. Be true to who you are. He said, how can I deny my desires? And Christianity says, don't trust your desires. Your desires are broken. So often you you desire evil things or wrong things. And so align your desires. Let scripture guide your desires um, and obey God. And therefore, right, in light of our fallenness, in light of this deep, broken situation that we all live in, the Bible asks us, not just in sexuality but in all things, for costly obedience, right? This is very important. Um, Jesus says, right? If anyone would come after me, then I'll take up the cross and deny himself. So the Christian life of obedience is marked by self-denial, by struggle, so that you should not think as a Christian the goal of life is to have ascending orders of happiness, self-actualization, um, throwing off all restraints. The Christian life is more and more saying no to these really deep desires that you find embedded within you. The, the Christian life is not about happiness, it's about holiness, right? And and on that note, and I'll, I'll, I'm going to open up for questions soon, but on that note, uh, a sort of a related objection is, well, we're asking too much of our gay friends, right? Because again, we're asking for a lifetime of sexual restraint and self-denial. But here I want to say that, again, in light of the Christian story of the fall in light of the costly obedience that we're being asked um, that Christianity asks all the time for difficult obedience. So for example imagine someone who is in a very unhappy marriage like my friend and this person says there is no hope for mer- for marital renewal this is a loveless marriage, this is a dead marriage. What does the Bible say? The Bible says love your spouse Keep pursuing your spouse. Be loyal to your marriage. Be faithful to your marriage. Even if you don't feel satisfaction, even if you don't feel fulfillment or emotional uh, connection, stay in the marriage. That's what the Bible asks. Or uh, uh, imagine a single, and uh, the single person wants to get married, and the years roll by, and they're so desperate for a companion. And yet there's no prospect. What does the Bible say? The Bible says, yes, there's no promise that you're going to get married. There's no promise that your life is going to fit the American dream. But nevertheless, live a life of a lifetime of holiness, of chastity. And if you're never married, right, lifetime of chastity. Or consider someone with a debilitating disease. You know, somebody who has um, some sort of chronic illness, some chronic pain that that, nev- that can never be healed or cured. You know, perhaps um, a debilitating depression. The Bible says, I mean, so, so why is that? Again, why do we have these things? I mean, why is it that singles who want to get married cannot be married sometimes? Why is it that you get married and you're full of hope and excitement, and then... And then, you, and then you wake up and you realize your marriage is, is empty and dead. You know Why is it that some people have suffered depression or autism or why do people have cancer? Because this is the Bible story. We live in the fall. Even though we have redemption in Jesus Christ, we're waiting for a new creation. We're not there yet. And therefore, um, the Bible says to someone who has depression, don't give in to despair. Don't give up hope keep praising God, keep pursuing God, um, even still, right? And therefore, uh, in the Christian story, living with unfulfilled desires is not the exception to the rule, it is the rule, right? Uh, to the degree that you live a life in which you don't feel a rub with our culture to the degree that you don't experience frustration or difficulty or sacrifice, to that degree, perhaps, it's a very good indication that perhaps you're compromising and you're assimilating with this life. Because if you're pursuing full-on a life of holiness and obedience, you're going to experience a great deal of unfulfillment in this life. Because you have to constantly say no, right? Um... Let me open up for questions. I know there's two passages. I'm gonna hit those passages, because I think those two passages are really beautiful. But any questions there? Yes.
1: I might be digressing a bit, but as you were know, really telling us about how, you know, for example, your friend who had sort of a loveless marriage, yeah. and there's this sort of, the, the greater importance and greater weight is to put into commitment
0: to the relationship would that not also justify, or I guess, define that the you know the initial courtship itself is also fallen? Uh, but what do you mean? So you know, for example, if the if the sole purpose of that relationship or marriage is towards that commitment and to be good Christians, yeah oftentimes, at least in this society, we have you know, various types of courtship and there's that mutual interest and there's that feel, feelings of love and everything else. Right. Is that
1: not fallen? Is
0: that not sort of a parent- Oh, I, I think I understand what you're saying. Like, are you talking about um, the modern dating yep. paradigm? Well, the Bible has nothing to say about how courtship should be done. Uh, if you look in the ancient world, everything was done by arranged marriages. Yep. Now, you can say, oh, so that's the way we should do it. Because you know what? If you look at the Bible, they're all healthy, beautiful, thriving marriages. No, right? The human condition is so broken. There is no remedy before new creation, before Christ, the King returns to make everything good and beautiful again. There is no remedy to set everything right. Of course, we should strive and long and, and pursue righteousness, holiness, beauty. But... The Christian has a kind of um, has a kind of measured expectation of life, so that he, in every happy moment, the Christian has a kind of perspective like, "This will not last," right? Um, um, or the Christian has a perspective like, "Oh, this thing is going to be really awesome if I could just have that." The Christian says, "I know that when I get that, it's not going to be as I imagined or, pro- or it's been promised, because everything is broken." If you get married, you will soon realize your spouse is deeply broken and there will be unhappiness in your marriage. I guarantee it. The call of a Christian is, even despite the unhappiness, you obey God. You conform your life, not to your desires, but to the will of God. So, uh, I'll, I'll leave it for, for more questions, but let me just dive into the passages. And therefore... Therefore, 1 Corinthians 6, I think is so beautiful and it's so hopeful and it's an amazing passage, um, which is that the gospel is for broken sinners. The gospel is for uh, broken uh, straight people and the gospel is for broken gay, our gay friends. 1 Corinthians 6, let me read it for you. Do you not know that the unrighteousness, that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God, right? Do not be deceived. Neither the sexually immoral, nor idolaters, nor, nor adulterers, nor men who practice homosexuality, nor thieves, nor the greedy, nor drunkards, nor revilers, nor swindlers will inherit the kingdom of God. Listen to verse 11. And such were some of you. But you were washed, you were sanctified, you were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and by the Spirit of our God. And so what is Paul saying in, in verse 11? I have it underlined. He says... Listen, okay, think about the implication of what he's saying. He says there were homosexuals in the Corinthian church. He says, such were some of you. There were there were Christians who had strong same-sex desires, but they were washed. They were sanctified, right? So the gospel is for everyone. It's for LGBT friends. Um... But it says we're sanctified, meaning we have to leave aside, leave past, leave behind um, our former lives of disobedience and now live lives of holiness and obedience. Some of you might be saying, okay, then, why is it that, you know, uh, 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 why is it that for so many of our gay friends, they become Christians or they are Christians, why do they still struggle with these deep desires, right? And I think Romans 8 has a beautiful answer, Uh let me read to you and not only the creation but we ourselves who have the f- the first fruits of the spirit grown inwardly as we wait eagerly for adoption as sons the redemption of our bodies what is paul talking about right there he's not talking about this life he's talking about the hope of new creation right the hope that one day our king will come back for in this hope we were saved now hope, right? Hope is this future-oriented asser- asser- ass certainty. Now hope that is seen is not hope. For who hopes for what he sees? But if we hope for what we do not see, we wait for it with patience, right? And so I would say to, uh, to gay Christians um, who, have, who have these strong same-sex attractions that along with you, right, all of us, we're waiting. We're waiting for final redemption. And we're groaning. You know what groaning is? Groaning means that life is marked by sorrow and difficulty. And so we expect, uh, we expect sorrow, we expect grief, and we feel keenly the gap between the world as it should be, the way we can imagine it, the way it once was in the garden, but now it's ruined and the way the world is right now. And therefore, pain and frustration, if you experience pain and frustration in this life, it's not a mark of failure, it's a mark of faithfulness. Because you're obeying God. And therefore, you feel alienated from this broken world, right? And so the lie of our culture, I think, is that to, be a, to live a fully realized human life, you have to have sex. You can't deny your sexual desires. It's so cruel to, to suppress or, or deny your sexuality. But Jesus Christ, who is the truest man who ever lived, and Wade's going to talk about it in the sermons. I won't steal too much of his thunder. Um, he was a sexual celibate his entire life. And he is the model of what it means to be human, right? So, um, so that's what we're asking of our gay friends. Any questions? Any? Yes, Christy. When you say our gay
1: friends, yeah.
0: Have you saying our gay friends? Oh, uh, uh, oh, that's a really good. Uh, it's a good, yeah, good. I mean, a uh, good, good point that you're. Um, I'm sorry to interrupt you, but I just want to make one more note. I, I wrote it down. So, so just go back to to First Corinthians. It says, "And such were some of you, right? So." <laughs> Let me not just say uh, uh, our gay friends as if they're all outside this room. <laughs> uh, I have no doubt, uh, if you look at the sociological statistical data, there's probably one or two, maybe three, who have same-sex attractions in our church. So my hope, my dream, and my prayer is that we become such an accepting, welcoming, loving church, non-judgmental church, a church where brokenness is is transparent so that we're all broken so that they would feel comfortable. You know, it doesn't have to, like, they don't have to come up and, you know, come out of the closet to everybody, but to trust the Christian friends, and uh, that would be, I think, an amazing thing. But I'm sorry, so that's what trickled my thought. But anyway, so you were saying, so when we're talking about our gay friends...
1: When you're talking, when you're saying your objections, LGBT friends, are you just saying
0: LGBT friends in general or ones who believe in Jesus? Yeah, so I'm talking about. Um, or oh, you mean in terms of like uh, we're asking them for a life of sexual harm. Yeah, because I just think
1: if, if you don't.
0: So it's both. If it's you don't both. Know Jesus, yeah.
1: If you it's, don't know the gospel,
0: then it's, it's both. Be harder. Yeah, it's both. So I think. Um, so okay, so this, so here here I'm gonna qualify what I'm gonna say and say I'm on less sure ground. Okay, but. I think this is partially the problem of Christianity's stance in our culture right now, which is that we're sort of the leaning, the, the sort of the, the front end of our dialogue on, 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 uh, on homosexuality is, well, it's wrong, right? And uh, I think there's a great truth to that, which is that um, ultimately, if the Bible is right and, and true, then they're doing great harm to themselves, and it's ultimately the path to death. Right. all disobedience leads to death all sin leads to death uh, but the, the call to holiness ha- the, the resources for that make sense only in light of the gospel right? we're asking for something um, we're asking for an obedience that goes beyond what we ask normally for other people um, so it's kind of both, I don't know if that makes sense if you have a gay friend um, should you tell your gay friend, so by the way you know, you ought not to have uh, same-sex relationships with people. Um, you know, I don't know. I'm not sure how, 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 how... Huh? Right. So would you tell your straight friend? Like, if your straight friend's sleeping with his girlfriend, right? Um, I guess it depends on how good a friend you are, right? And I guess, like, the majority of what I would say to my straight friend who's sleeping with his girlfriend is, or, or cohabiting is not, oh, you know, that's a sin, um, is I would tell them, you know, you're lost without Jesus. Let me tell you about Jesus. Um, but of course, the good news isn't good until you also know the bad news. So this this is a tough question. I'm going to artfully dodge it. <laughs> <laughs> Ezra. In the first he says, "He refers to men who practice homosexuality." Yeah.
1: homosexuals.
0: Yes. Yeah. So the translation there, there's a big amount of discussion about the word there. Um, it's an English translation. Um, so there's some debate about what was the ancient world's understanding of orientation. Um, but I think that uh, uh, we. So there's. So for example, Westhill calls himself a gay celibate Christian. There's a lot of people. Um, who don't like that term? They, they prefer um, uh, someone who has same sex attractions, so that uh, their homosexuality doesn't define them. Uh, but it's 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 the desires that they have, right? Um, I'm not going to. I I'm going to artfully dodge. I, I don't. I I, I I guess what I'm saying is, honestly, I I don't see why that should be a distinction. Because, I mean, like, do I think of myself as a polygamist? Well, because I think... No, you know, but do I find in myself polygamous desires? Every man has polygamous desires. Yeah. I, I'm not
1: trying to, um, be but yeah. I actually agree with a lot of what you're saying. Yeah. The thing that I think is really important for the church yeah. is to, um, to regard people's desires and to, like, really regard the anatomy and mechanics of people's desires. Yeah. Because there's a specificity to, so, like, Society in general, or per person, right? And so, like, when we do these
0: blanket statements, this is not homosexual society. Yeah. Like, um, it
1: becomes very risky. Babies. And so that's no, why yeah. I'm very curious. Like, maybe there are things outside of their control that were influencing their perceptions.
0: Yeah. Like, right. Like, right. So, I mean, so it's it's like uh, according to sociological data, around four percent of men are gay, um and and for women, there's a very wide variance. um um, something like two to eighteen percent. The reason why there's an enormous variance is because it depends on how you define it. If you define it as do you have same-sex desires ever in your life, it goes up to eighteen percent. If you define it as do you have exclusive, strong, unrelenting, unchanging same-sex desires, it goes down to two percent. Right? So sexuality is a really complicated, deep. Um, this is why I'm artfully dodging it. Um, it's, it's hard to understand it. And if you look at, for example, the ancient world, virtually all Greek men were essentially bisexual, right? Um, because bisexuality was celebrated in the ancient world. So how do we account for that? How do we explain that? So it must have been somewhat sociological because bisexuality among men is extremely rare in modern Western society, whereas homosexuality... Um, is around four percent, right? Four, maybe five percent. So, I don't know. <laughs> All right, I'm gonna I'm gonna press forward. I'm gonna press forward. Okay, um, these are good questions. All right. Uh, so next objection: uh, If homosexuality is a sin, then why would God create people to be born this way? Right. Um. So here, I think there's a inherent fallacy embedded in the question which is that if same-sex desires cannot be changed, then they must not be sinful. Um, So I think here that sort of the popular understanding of sin is that sin is only sin if it's intentional and if it's deliberate acts of evil. If it's innate, if it's embedded within you, or if you're born with it, then it really can't be that bad or it can't be wrong. Um, And I think for a long time, the Christian discourse on homosexuality bought into that um, paradigm and so there was a long, long insistence that all people um, who are in, in gay relationships, they, they voluntarily, volitionally chose that lifestyle, right? Um, and I think both sides are flawed in their thinking because the biblical view of sin is so profound, it's so deep. Romans 6.17, we are slaves to sin. Jesus says in John, everyone who sins is a slave to sin, and therefore the very nature of sin is that it's not freely chosen. And so I would argue that all sin comes from innate predispositions. Right? It, there is no sin in which you rationally sit down at a table and say, you know what? Should I commit this sin? They're all born from these inter- deep internal desires. And let me just give you uh, an illustration of this. Uh, it's a little bit of a dangerous illustration. but uh, So let me throw in a lot of caveats. If you, I, I read this article in The Atlantic Um, several years ago, I think, about pedophilia. And uh, it was a really interesting discussion. Um, According to DSM, pedophilia is listed as an orient, sexual orientation, meaning it's something that's innate, it's something that you're born with, uh, it's something that doesn't arise so much out of some sort of childhood trauma or some sort of uh, disconnected relationship with your father or something like that. But it's internal and it's innate and it, it, ar- it arises and then it never goes away. It's unrelenting and it's strong. And the article is basically saying that we need to destigmatize pedophilia to allow these uh, uh, men, mostly men, to come out of the sort of the shadow of secrecy and shame so that they can be uh, embraced and they can be helped. Right? And I'm not claiming to be an expert at all, but I, I was really sympathetic to the article's perspective. But I think the, the, the only reason why I mention that is because um, pedophilia also qualifies as an orientation, if, we, if you think about it in those categories. And yet, orientation is not sufficient a license to therefore act on your desires. And let me also say this. The reason why it's a dangerous um, illustration or analogy is I am not at all saying that pedophilia and homosexuality are equivalent in any way. Obviously, pedophilia has... Um, uh, a deep perverse evil to it uh, that homosexuality does not so I'm not equating them in any way uh, I think to equate them is to be really obtuse and really to be um, callous in your analysis but there is there is something in the human condition that makes sexual desires a lot of them innate and built in right how do we account for that and therefore I think the Bible would say, You need to distrust your desires and align them with scripture. The other example I would give is all men are oriented towards polygamy, in my opinion. Um, If you look at the history of male behavior, um, and again, that's not a license. So, look at Romans 6, right? What Paul writes, Let not sin, therefore, reign in your mortal bodies to make you obey their passions. Do not present your members to sin as instruments for unrighteousness, but present yourself to God as those who have been brought from death to life and your members to God as instruments for righteousness for sin will have no dominion over you. Listen to the language Paul uses. Paul says sin is something, not just something that you do, but something that's over you. It reigns. It has dominion. But then through the power of the gospel, we are not to submit to its power. And let me just uh, uh, go further in this objection and then I'll open up for questions again. Um, West Hill talks about this a great deal he says if we say that homosexuality is wrong a lo- for a lot of people it means that gays therefore should hate themselves it teaches self-hate he talks about this example he says that um, he says that every time he felt same-sex attractions he felt repulsive to God right um, he felt like his very being was an offense to God and and therefore, isn't it an unusually cruel and unhelpful way to think of, of homosexuality because it teaches them self hate or it teaches them self loathing, right? And here, I'm going to borrow from a West Hill's analysis, but let me draw a distinction between um, uh, three things, which is there's orientation, right, which is innate desires, deep desires, um, and again, that's variable but uh, orientation and then lust so you have these you have these innate desires and then you you can indulge them you can fantasize about them you can give in to them you can dwell on them and then there's the actual uh, the act right and we would say for homosexuality these two are sins this is not a sin Sin onto itself. I think it's a function of human brokenness, right? But but you're not. It's not a. Um, it's not an act of sin. It's not an act of rebellion against God. And I would say it's kind of like when a married man finds himself attracted to another woman. Um, that's a broken desire. The fact that married men uh, uh, find other women attractive is a broken desire. Uh, however. Um It's not in and of its, it's, 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 it's not an act of rebellion because it's sort of natural, uh, natural to the human fallenness, but to give in to it, to, to dwell on it, to indulge it, to fantasize about it, and then to act on it, these are most definitely sins, right? Um, and let me say this, that I think being gay is a wonderful gift to the church. And West Hill talks about this. He says every single person that he came out to, his friends, his professors, he would talk about his experience, you know, and every single one of them, he was shocked. They would say to him, Thank you so much for sharing and trusting me with this. Thank you for being so open to me that you consider me such a good friend. He was really surprised. This reaction happened again and again, and he realized that out of the closet gay Christians who practice sexual holiness is a great gift to the church because it builds up the church, it, it creates deeper intimacy in the church, and it shows us a model. Of someone who's struggling for holiness, struggling for to obey God. Um, any questions there? Yes, Sharon. So, um, so um, as a professional. Uh, as a what?
1: So, um, so this is, I guess I've jumped
0: to the third point. Yeah. But as, as a what life professional. As a. I hear. As a what professional? A oh, wedding? I thought you said white professional. <laughs> <laughs> you cannot mean you're white. <laughs> so even
1: a like, like florist, photographer, makeup artist, if you get called to like a gay wedding, yeah. And then if you so is the correct response to turn it down or but then but then but then the other thing is, right? Because you know, let me give you an example. The the last wedding I shot, yeah. it turns out they were polygamists. I didn't know that. Yeah. But, but, but I still, still shot the wedding because yeah. I thought they were straight. Right? So in that way, like if I shot that wedding versus shooting a gay wedding, is that not the same act of supporting...
0: Yeah, so that's a, a really, really history. big issue. Uh, I'm not going to speak definitively on it. Yeah. Uh, I think it would be a really... I, so I think it's sort of... Uh, I'm going to leave it as a wisdom issue. I think each Christian needs to work it out. For myself, if I were a photographer, I would shoot a gay wedding um, as an act of kindness and charity. Um, also because it's very hard to be consistent. Uh, the Bible has extremely rigorous standards of marriage and sexuality. Uh, for example, Christian and non-Christian ought not to get married. Um, there are all kinds of rules against remarriage, only under certain conditions. Um, so uh, that's my position. I really respect and, and, and commend a Christian who, out of their own integrity and consciousness, would, 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 would not want to support uh, a gay marriage by providing photography services or baking the cake. Uh, this is complicated. I'm an art for Dodger. you should have now your wedding or like, are
1: perpetuating and supporting society? Yeah, that's one way to look at it. Yeah, that's perfect. one. This
0: is so one way. Is, is you're sanctioning it. Sure. I, as a minister, would not officiate um, a wedding that's. First of all, I wouldn't have sanctioned a wedding that's not in the church, basically. So, so for me, I have all kinds of ministerial scruples that I would not officiate, for example, a gay wedding. Um, but I don't think photography is quite the same thing. We can talk about that later. Yes.
1: But the same thing. on the doctor. Yeah. If, if the robber gets shot, like, yeah. Do you not treat him? No. Right. Wait. Right, you don't. That's same thing. I, I take care of pregnant women. Yeah. They always. They, they don't always get born out. You know, they could be born out of wedlock. Yeah. I have. Gay female couple that yeah. get insemination to get pregnant. Yeah. I mean, do I not treat them? Yeah. No. I mean, I don't. I mean, I don't see that
0: as against my faith. Yeah. Uh, yeah. So I think I think we don't live in New Jerusalem. We live in Babylon, um, right? Uh, and so we love our non-Christian friends and neighbors. Um, but how do you exactly how do you love them? So I do want to leave it to a wisdom discretionary issue. I'm not going to lay down a law uh, and let that help. Any, any other questions? Yes. So
1: um, I know you focus a lot on um, the actual act of uh, sex. Yes. But let's say there's a, um, a gay or a homosexual couple. Well, there's,
0: I mean, so survival not only prohibits the act, it also prohibits uh, active thought life, <laughs> fantasizing. So, for example, pornography is excluded in all cases.
1: Okay. I was gonna say. Well, I was, what I was gonna say, is like, what if uh, um, homo- they a homosexual relationship, mm-hmm. but they, you know, don't have sex, mm-hmm. but they're actually, you know, um, I mean, like, I guess it's a little different because they're obviously the same. So,
0: some sort of a uh, chaste gay relationship. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I
1: guess. Yeah, like, mean, was that is that like acceptable then, or is that not acceptable? Because I know we were focusing a lot on sex, so then you sure. don't, you know, um,
0: um, I might address that. I, I do have I do have follow up thoughts on on. Uh, the importance of friendships mm-hmm. you know I don't know I'm going to plead ignorance I, mean,
1: I, I think because I don't want to
0: I don't want to say something <laughs> false uh, I want I want my answers to be helpful so I haven't sufficiently thought of it my first instinct is that's a strange relationship um, um, yeah
1: well I guess because like for example if um, there's a um, heterosexual couple same thing you know um, she's relationship, you know, following everything else but during the relationship. Yeah, but there's a
0: trajectory, right? There's a, there's a teleology. You're, you're moving towards something.
1: Yeah, well, hopefully. <laughs> yeah. Right. Um, so, but that would be, that would hold true for the gay, the gay couple, right? Yeah, but we wouldn't hold, I mean, we wouldn't say that's um, like sinful at the time, because you know, I mean, that's part of that. You know what I'm saying? Where, but versus a gay, we might say, well, I what i to trying to find out. It's like, you see it right away. Yeah. You can't even, you can't even step in, step, step into that. Versus in a, in a heterosexual, we can say, yeah, you can date each other, or you can go through that process, and it's not really simple, per se, as long as you don't you know, right. live together, or, you know, just, you know, same idea, right?
0: Yeah, that's a very good question. You've stumped,
1: You've stumped Well, Like you said, it's a relationship to somewhere, right? You're, you don't want to be in a perpetual dating for 20 years, hopefully. It's, it should be...
0: Chase or, it. or something, yeah. <laughs> yeah. Well, I mean, for like, homosexuals, they can't get
1: married, right? But then they still have the companionship. Yeah. So, so I'll, I'll talk about the
0: companionship that. aspect. I'm getting to that. Oh, okay. That's a very important a- part oh, of the okay. answer that yeah. I'm trying to give. All right, so, um, all right, so here's the thing, right? It's unfair, next objection, it's unfair to ask our LGBT friends to permanently abstain from sex with no hope of marriage. This goes beyond what we ask anyone else to do. So for example, um, you have lifelong singles, find themselves unmarried, there's still always the possibility that they will get married. Or someone who's in a loveless marriage unhappily married, there's always a hope of of course there's always a hope that that marriage can be renewed and there'll be love and happiness once again. But we're asking for our gay friends uh, something beyond that which is permanent unrelenting celibacy Um, um, and the objection is that you can't force celibacy on anybody it has to be a gift. It has to be voluntary. It has to be chosen, right? So here's, here's an answer, Matthew 19. Let me read it to you. Jesus is talking, he's talking about divorce. And I say to you, whoever divorces his wife except for sexual immorality and marries another commits adultery. The disciples said to him, if such is the case of a man with his wife, it is better not to marry right so they're they're being quite they're be, they're, they're giving into cynicism right because they're saying it's so hard but jesus said to them not everyone can receive this saying but only those to whom it is given for there listen okay for there are eunuchs who have been who have been so from birth and by the way uh, just in case you don't know a eunuch is a man without testicles which means that sex is precluded he cannot have sexual relations right uh so there are eunuchs who have been so from birth And there are eunuchs who have been made eunuchs by men. And there are eunuchs who have made themselves eunuchs for the sake of the kingdom of heaven. Let the one who is able to receive this receive it. So what is Jesus saying? He's using eunuch as a kind of metaphor of someone who is not going to be married. Because again, you're talking about marriage and divorce. And he, he outlines three categories of eunuchs, or maybe a better way to think of it is three categories of people who will not experience marriage in this life. He says, eunuchs who have made themselves eunuchs. What does that mean? Obviously not literally, right? He's talking about uh, people who have voluntarily for the sake of ministry or some other great calling decided that it is not good and right to be married. For example, the Apostle Paul. I can imagine uh, someone who's doing really dangerous work, um, uh, maybe like a soldier or something, and he says, I don't want to you know, subject my fa- family to that. So for some great higher cause, they decide that they're going to say no to what is allowed to them, right? Then, he, then, Paul talk, then Jesus talks about eunuchs who have been made eunuchs by men. What is Jesus talking about? He's talking about terrible injustice, acts of violence in which slaves are kidnapped, they're castrated, right? And they're made eunuchs by this terrible act of violence. So they never got to choose this eunuch life for themselves. And then the third thing Jesus talks about is eunuchs who have been so from birth. So what is Jesus talking about there? We can imagine he's talking about, perhaps, uh, people who are born with genital deformations, perhaps, um, or some kind of physical malady or something that prohibits them from getting married or having sexual relations. And I think in that category, within that category, it is not entirely unreasonable to include homosexuals in that category as people who have some sort of innate predisposition that closes the door to marriage. Right. And here's the conclusion I want to make. Jesus recognizes that some will be asked to shoulder bur- burdens that they wouldn't have chosen for themselves. And that this burden bearing is a normal part of life in the kingdom of God. And so that God asks some of us sacrifices that we would never choose for ourselves. Right? Um, that we would have never, we, we don't, we don't want to make this sacrifice. But nevertheless, God imposes this on us, He puts the burden on us and he says, trust me, obey me, follow me for the rest of your life. Right? Um, And I think later on, if you read Matthew 19, it's not printed in the the, uh, paper, Jesus says this, and anyone who has left houses or brothers or sisters or father or mother or sister or children or lands for my name's sake, listen, will receive a hundredfold and will inherit eternal life, but many who are first will be last and the last will be first. So Jesus is saying this. He's saying there's a deep, for everyone who is asked of this sacrifice and this self-restraint and self-denial, he says there's a deep, deep, deep consolation that you can't even begin to imagine waiting for you in all of eternity in the new creation. And he says, even in this life, there is consolation, right? There is there is a hundredfold receiving of brothers and sisters. And so what is he talking about? I think he's talking about Christian friendships in the church. And here, uh, again, to evoke West Hill's story, West Hill says that for a long time, he was afraid to hug men, his guy friends, because he didn't want his, his, his same-sex desires to be aroused. So he, he just wouldn't hug guys. And for a long time, he realized that he was cheating himself out of fear, of this deep resource in the church, which is friendships. Um, and I, I recently read uh, this article about, there's, a, there's this club in which strangers meet together and they just hug each other. <laughs> right? <laughs> because I think like we live in such a modern mobile economy where we're all disconnected from extended family, not all but many, and, and so we're missing that element of connectedness. I think human touch, Hugging is really vital, and I want us to be a church where we hug each other uh, appropriately. Men hugging men, women hugging women, you know, and uh, maybe in um, uh, safe areas, men hugging women for uh, in restricted uh, comforting areas. But but it has. I think like we need a church where there's deep friendships, where uh, people who are asked to live a celibate life right, made eunuchs for, for one reason or another, they have consolation in the church through friendships, right? Um, all right, any questions? How are we doing in time? Holy smokes. Okay. Oh, I'm so sad. Oh, I'm so sad. I'm so sad. No questions. I'm going to do three minutes, everything else. Okay. Um, next objection. How can love be wrong? Love is love. Uh, I've been watching Game of Thrones. There's this great line where Jamie Lannister says to his daughter, if you know the story, at the very end of the season, he says, You don't choose who you love. So I think that's a very deeply resonant argument that people have. And I think the Christian response is um, that there is such a thing as disordered love, that love can be disordered by sin. I give the example of 2 Samuel. If you know the story, basically Absalom falls in love with his sister, right? And he rapes her. And so what would the Bible say to that? Love is love? No. Doubt yourself. Trust the wisdom of God. Next objection, doesn't the Bible condemn, uh, Old Testament condemn homosexuality, but what about all these other things? Um, that is a very, very poor reading of the Old Testament. There are distinctions made. There's the moral law, and we know that homosexuality is part of the moral law because it's reiterated in the Bible, in the New Testament, Paul, Jesus, um, and so forth. And um, next objection, in the past, Christians supported slavery, misogynation laws, anti-Semitism, then aren't we on the wrong side of history? Wow, I wish I could just go into this, right? Because that is a very bad misreading of history, which is the idea that almost all Christians supported slavery in the past. That is patently not true. In fact, most evangelical Christians have always had a massive problem with with slavery. Not to mention the fact that it was evangelical Christians who ended slavery, the the fight uh, to end slavery. And I'll say this, everyone who supported slavery as Christians sort of twisted scripture because they were trying to accommodate the broader culture. right? They were living in the South, slaveholding South, and they wanted to be in cahoots with power, with the cultural powers that be. So, what analogy is correct now? On the issue of homosexuality, are we trying to be in cahoots with culture? Are we trying to fit in and be accepted by the powers that be? I say exactly the opposite. To make a stance for orthodox uh, sexuality puts us at great odds to culture, and the Bible is uniformly negative on homosexuality. There is no complicated reading of passages. You cannot do it. It cannot be done. There have been attempts, but in my humble opinion, they're very, very poor and thin. Um, Alright, let me pray. (laughs) I'm really sorry. Oh, I'm
1: so sad. Okay.
0: Heavenly Father, um, so, Lord... (laughs) Uh, Obviously, so much has been left unsaid. There are many questions remaining. Lord, let this be our attitude that um, even if we don't understand and even if we're still struggling with comprehension, um, our orientation would be to trust you, to seek out your wisdom, to try to follow your thoughts after you and try to understand the biblical vision of sexuality, the biblical vision of the Christian life, a life of sacrifice and self-denial. And I pray that for all of us, we would practice this in our lives. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen. All right. Thank you, everybody.